you've got a Bible, you can open it to uh, the book of Romans, chapter 5 this morning, Romans chapter 5. Um, this week and next week, we are, uh, Lord willing, finishing up this series um, called Justified in the chapters 4 and 5 of Romans, and uh, so this week we're in Romans chapter 5, and we have been talking the last couple of weeks about this idea of being, how justification, and if you're new with us, that means being declared righteous, being made right with God, okay, being made right with God, Paul has told us in Romans, is by faith, right, it happens, it's, it's by grace through faith, and it's, it's by believing on what Christ has done, trusting the God who saves, trusting the God who sent Jesus to die for our sins and rise again, that we are made right, that we are declared righteous by God. Those who are unrighteous, ungodly, sinners, right, are declared righteous and are right with God, and that happens through believing, through faith. Well, as we transition to chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 in chapter 5 are kind of a hinge on which this door swings, and, and the subject changes a little bit to this idea of, so in, in, in verses 1 through 11, the idea is, so what all comes with that? What does it mean, practically, if you're justified by faith, kind of, What's the fine print? You know what I'm saying? Like when you buy something, there's, there's always more to it than what you realize. How, um, a couple of um, weeks ago, maybe about three weeks ago now, uh, Christy and I were at this fundraiser uh, for Cannon's school, our six-year-old, uh, for his school. And uh, there were all these things. There was a silent auction, right? And all these things that you could bid on. And, and so there was this whole long table of trips. And so uh, vacation trips. So I'm going over there and I'm looking at them and I see like Antigua and the Bahamas or whatever, you know, all these places. And I'm like, okay. I'm looking, what, what are the bids on these things? And like all of them like 100 bucks, right? And that's like the highest bid on any of them, like $100, like seven to nine nights, right, in Antigua. And I'm like, for $100? Okay. You know, then I get to reading the, the fine print, right? And it's like, but you've got to pay the taxes and the flight, right? And I'm like, well, the flight, okay. And I'm looking at the tax. The taxes are two to $300 per night per person. So I'm doing the math real quick, and all of a sudden, this is like a three, dollars $4,000 trip, right? And that might still be a deal in Antigua. I get that, but it's more than what, you know, was behind the $100, okay? You weren't getting that trip for $100, but we didn't bid on the trip, right? And so, uh, anyway, so, but things are like that, right? You buy the car, and you got the car, and you didn't know everything about the car, and maybe you bought the car used, and now you, you get the car, and you realize, well, it needs brakes, or it needs this, or you get, but it's, but then it's yours, right? Once you buy something, then, then it's yours. And now we don't. Christ has purchased our salvation; He gives us to it, for, gives it to us for free when we believe on Christ. But once you become a believer, and now you're justified, okay? What all does that entail? Well, verses one through eleven, we find out the fine print's pretty good. Uh, what all that comes with being justified and declared righteous in the eyes of God? It's really incredible. Uh, this picture of holistic salvation that is ours in Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at um, this morning. In Romans 5, 1 through 11, Paul is laying out the benefits or the blessings of what it means to be justified by faith. All of what he lists in these verses, in this chapter, if you're a believer, if you've placed your faith in Christ, whether that happened at the age of 5 or 55 or somewhere else, listen, it's all yours if you're in Christ. All of this is ours, right? As, as the community of faith who believe in Christ, if you're in Christ, all of this is yours. And if you've believed the gospel, been justified, declared righteous by God because of your faith in Jesus, all this is yours. Now you say, well, if I'm not a Christian, right? What if I'm still trying to figure this out, figure out where I stand in my faith, whether I really want to follow Christ? Well, this is what can be yours, okay? This, if you're justified through faith in Christ, if you place your faith in Christ, you get all of this. So look with me. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1 of Romans. It's on the screen for you. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, okay, so he's setting it up for us. Since we've been justified by faith, summarizing that, therefore, summarizing everything that we've already studied in Romans in the first four chapters, especially chapter four. Since all that's true, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we shall have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now remember, all of those verses are in light of those first four chapters that we've studied, especially chapter four, as I mentioned. That's, that's what the therefore cheesy as it is, that's what the therefore is there for, right? So you, anytime you're studying your Bible, you see a therefore, you got to figure out like, okay, therefore, what, what, you got to look back, right? We got to figure out what the context is. And he explains it actually for us in this one. He goes, therefore, since you've been justified by faith, that's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's drawing our attention to. All this is what we have. This is what is ours. John Stott pointed out how in other places in Romans 1 through 3, Paul talks about in, in, in the first person is an I, or he talks in the second person, he says, he said, or he talks about you, or he talks about they. And this is the first time where he's boiling it all down. He's saying, now let's talk about us, right, the church. What is ours? We're not talking about the Jews or the lost or the pagan world, or, or I am no longer, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now it's we. What do we have as believers in Christ? This is what is ours in the community of faith. And Paul here in these 11 verses is describing a whole new reality that comes to us through faith in Christ that the believer has. Even if your life, right? You say, right now my life feels like a country song, okay? Well, that's okay. If you're in Christ, even if your life feels like a country song right now, right, and your dog's died and everything else, in the, everything bad has happened to you, right? This is still true for you, right? Even if it doesn't, like, feel right. or It's not about feeling. These are facts, right? Paul said, this is what is true if you are in Christ. Even if the world around you feels, man, like it's just spinning apart, and you haven't had a good day in 365 days, I'm telling you, if you're in Christ, all of this is true for you. And this is the most important stuff in all the world. All right? So let's walk through this. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will use this passage today to kind of strengthen our souls. Okay? So three big things here that I want you to see that is yours in Christ. First of all, I want you to see the peace of the believer. All right? So if you're a believer in Christ, he says you have peace with God through Christ. Now, he goes down at, the, down at the end of the passage in verses 10 and 11. He starts talking about reconciliation. So the passage is bookended with this idea of peace or reconciliation. Talk about the same thing there. You have peace with God. Why, how do you get peace? You get it by being reconciled, okay? And so we have this peace, this reconciliation. Now, here's not talking about a peace that you feel, right? I'm just not at peace. I can't get a peace about the decision. I get all that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a concrete, absolute, like, 
objective peace. You have something. You have peace with God through Christ. And that comes through reconciliation. Now, the Greek word here that Paul uses for, for peace is the Old Testament equivalent for the word for shalom, for the Hebrew word for peace. Now, that means it conveys more than like the end of enmity and strife and, and, and separation. It conveys the idea of the well-being of your relationship with God. It's like this. God did just not, didn't just cease from condemning you when you got saved. He didn't just go, you know what? You're all right. You know? You're not going to go to hell now. Right? It's, that's, not, that's not what he did. He's not, it's not like God had his gun pointed at you, right? And he said, oh, I'm going to put my gun down. Right? It, I'm, I'm going to judge you. Now I'm not going to judge you. You're, you're okay. And now he tolerates you. Right? That's not the idea at all. The idea of that word peace, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around it because we don't really use that word like they did in the Hebrew language, but it speaks to a health and a wholeness and a vitality. Listen, God didn't just go from not being your enemy. He became your father, right? And he loves you with a, with a fatherly love. He adopted you into his family. You're not just not an enemy. Now you're family. We're adopted as sons and daughters, joint heirs with Christ, the beloved of God, the scriptures tell us, members of the body of Christ, the church, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. God does not just tolerate you. Satan would love for you to believe that about yourself this morning. <laughs> that, that you're just kind of getting by. But, but God has embraced you in Christ. And the peace you have with God means there is a wholeness, a wellness, a relationship full of vitality and life and health. And God has not just not condemned you. He has blessed you to the point that he's, he's given you himself, right? He's given you the very spirit of God to reside in your life. Now think about this. The Bible uses the term here, reconciled. Now, that's a relational term. Now, justified was a courtroom term. That's what we've been parked on for the last few weeks, this idea of being justified, this very kind of courtroom kind of thing. And now Paul's turning more relational because reconciliation is not a courtroom term. Now he's talking like well, we're around the family dinner table, and we're talking about relationships. We're talking about relational terms. And we talk, talk about these things. What He's driving home this idea of, how, how the relationship is so changed because we are justified, because we are declared righteous, because we are declared righteous legally right in the eyes of God, because that has happened, now God can embrace us as family, adopt us into his family, and we have, so we have been reconciled with him. And while we were at once enemies, now we're friends and we're family. And so think about this. When, when Jesus in the New Testament illustrated lostness, probably the most powerful story he used that gets told the most is the story of the prodigal son, right? We all love that. If you're not familiar with the story, um, the story of the prodigal son, Jesus tells this parable of a, of a son who decides he wants his inheritance. And in that day, that was a big deal because you don't get the inheritance until dad dies. And so by going to his dad in this Hebrew story and saying, I want my inheritance, he's basically saying, dad, it'd be great if you were dead. And that's how the dad would have took it back then. It was very insulting to do this. But the dad gives him his inheritance, right? And he gets his share because he has a brother, so that, you know, the way it would have been divided in that day. And he has an older brother, and the older brother got more. But he gets his share, and he goes. Make his way in the world, right? And he blows all the money, right? You know the story. He, he wastes it on just luxurious and sinful living, right? And by the end of it, he's feeding pigs and craving to eat what the pigs eat. And in a Hebrew story, that's a big deal because the pigs were unclean, and that was like the lowest of the low. So if you're a Jewish person and you were hearing Jesus tell the story, you're like, man, this is just disgusting um, that he would even want to do that, right? And he comes to his senses there in the pigsty. He says, I'm going to go, you know, my, my father's slaves and servants do better than this. I'm going to go back to my father. And so he comes to his senses, and as he's headed back home, right, you know the story. The father, 
He's waiting, right? He's on the front porch. He sees him coming. He picks up his robe, and he takes off running, which was something that they didn't do in that day. It was a, a father, a, a man of the house, did not pick up his robe, show his feet, and run like that. That You just did not do that. It was, it was humiliating to do that. And Jesus said, that's what this father did. And then he comes, in and he runs, and he embraces the guy. Right? He don't even get his, he's got a whole story prepared. He don't get it out. He just throws his arms around him, embraces him, takes his robe, and he puts it on him. He takes the ring and puts it on his finger. You ever read that? And you're like, what is that all about? Well, that was like the family seal. That was a sign of, man, you, I'm investing my authority back in you. You're, you're back in, right? Throws a big party, has a big celebration. My son was lost. Now he's found. He's back home. Incredible story. And Jesus shares that story to let us know this is what it's like for a lost person to get saved, right? And it's a picture of what? Reconciliation. If the father had looked at him and said, look, you've done some stuff. You've messed up. And your brother, if you know the story, the older brother was not very happy. He's not real happy, so we're going to have to kind of ease you back into things. So here's the deal. You do some chores around here. You start showing yourself. We see that you're serious, okay? We see that you're not just coming back because you need money, and, 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 and you do the right stuff, and there will be a place for you. You get back in the family business. Well, that wouldn't, that's not reconciliation. That's negotiation, okay? That's negotiation. Sometimes we try that with God, but that's not what God does with us. Yeah, reconciliation, I mean, he, he, just, he just embraces him, right? You're back. You're in the family. I haven't proven myself yet. You don't need to prove yourself, right? Because we know in the gospel what has happened is what Jesus did all the proving. Jesus did all the work. Jesus lived the righteous life. Jesus died in our place. And so when we are justified in the eyes of God, we get peace with God. It's because Jesus reconciles us. We're reconciled through Christ, through what he has done. And these are family terms that he's using here. God does not just tolerate you. He embraces you in Christ. And just as the father in Jesus' story sacrificed much to embrace his son, our heavenly father sent Jesus, and we know how much he sacrificed so that he can embrace us into his family. You don't have to wonder today, is God for me or against me if you're in Christ? Is God working for my good today? Does God love me? Does he like me? Is he angry at me? You have peace with God through Christ. The cross has changed everything. And because of that cross, God has embraced you and reconciled you. So that's yours. You're in Christ. That's, that's the fine print of justification. The second thing is yours is confidence, the confidence of the believer. Look at verse 2. Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Paul explains that through Christ, we have, the, he says this word access. It can also be translated introduction. We have been introduced by faith into this grace. The grace he means here is favorable standing with God. That's what he means. He's using it kind of in a different way than he's used it in other places. He's saying, listen, you have this favorable standing with God, this gracious standing, this peace, all this, this, this justification, this being adopted into God's family, this, this favorable standing with God you, you, you have, you have, you have obtained access to by, by faith, and, and you stand in it. And that word access or introduction denotes being brought into the presence of another in the Greek, okay? So, Whose presence are we? We're in, we get access to God, right? It's his presence. And because we're able to, to come into his presence and stand in his presence, we, we can stand justified before him. We can stand righteous before him because of what Christ has done. And we can approach God and be near God and have confidence in our relationship with God. Now, the key thing here I want you to see is the position. He says we stand in it. And there's, he, he chose that word for a reason. The, the Greek word conveys a continual standing. Paul's pointing to security. He's pointing to the idea that you can have confidence in your relationship with God. No believer in Christ 
is ever in danger of losing their position before God. Never. God doesn't abandon his children, even if we mess up. God doesn't unlove his beloved. He doesn't forsake his heirs. Believer, God isn't going to, to break up with you, right? He's not doing that. He, he, he's, not, he, he's, he's not ending things. He, he's not, you're not going to like wake up one day and be like, where'd God go? Like, where'd my relationship with him go, right? He's not going to do that. All of a sudden, he doesn't return your text messages and, and all, you know. No. He's, you go to pray, and it's like, he's not there. That's not going to happen, right? It's, it's built on, it's not based on our feelings. We, have, we stand secure in our relationship with God. Now, it is possible, it is possible to be in danger of not having the position that you claim. We, we can think we stand in his grace by, but at the same time, not be doing that because rather than being there by faith, we're trying to get there by works or something like that. But no one in the history of the world has ever lost their salvation. That's just not true. But many people have been deceived into thinking they have a salvation that they don't have. Now, that is true. So that's, that's why we spend time and we park and we go through a book like Romans that explains to us what the gospel and salvation is because we want us to know that we have it. But if you have it, if, you, if your faith's in Christ and not in yourself and not in your works and not in your religion and not in all that stuff, but it's in Christ and it's in Christ alone, all this is yours and it can't be taken away. Our security and our standing is not based on our behavior. It's rooted in grace. Listen, we, he says we stand in grace. We don't stand in reward or achievement or our payday. You, you, you didn't save yourself, adopt yourself, redeem yourself, justify yourself, and so you can't undo those things. It's not your doing. Anytime I talk to somebody, well, and I've had these conversations rather recently where somebody will say something like this. Listen, I think, uh, yeah, I think God doesn't, doesn't lose his children, but you can just choose to walk away. What if someone just chooses to walk away? And I would say, well, they're just showing the fact that they never truly believe, right? God does not forsake his people. And, 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 and he do, he's so intent on it that the promise of the new covenant is he gives you a new heart so that you will want to follow him and want to obey him. And if all of a sudden you walk away from God one day to never come back, all that proves is you never had that heart. Because God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, you have been made brand new. And we mess up, we fall down, the righteous falls down seven times, but he gets up every time. And we continue in our relationship with God because it's grace that we stand in Part of that grace is it's sustaining. It's, he sustains us, and, and, he, and he, he's working in your heart and in your life to persevere and to keep the faith. And all this means we can have confidence. We can, we can live with certainty. The pressure's off. We're not trying to perform. We're not trying to, to slide under the door of heaven right before the garage door closes, right? It, we're, we're in. God does not want his children living like they are uncertain of his love for them and his grace towards them, living like they could be kicked out of the family or, or barely sneak in. He wants you living with confidence because it's exhausting to live any other way. Listen, you live the Christian life not like you're standing by grace through faith. Listen, it'll exhaust you. It's like, it's like being in sand all the time. Right? You go to the beach. I'm not talking about sitting in sand and looking at the ocean. That's not exhausting. Okay? But go play sand volleyball for a couple of hours, and you're like ready to like crawl in a hole somewhere and be buried. I mean, it, it's, it's just exhausting, right? Every muscle in your leg is constantly moving because of that unsure foundation. And like, man, your, your feet are doing things that they weren't made to do, right? And so your feet hurt, your leg hurt. And, and man, it just, it just wears you out. Sand is exhausting, and, but it's, it's a little bit different than being on a, a solid foundation, right? You don't tire quite as quickly. And similarly, if you live the Christian life, 
from a place of not feeling stable, not feeling secure, it's quite exhausting. It's quite exhausting. And all of a sudden, you won't have the energy to serve others. And you won't have the energy to really pour yourself into the local church. And you won't have the energy to really step out there and live out your faith at work. Because all you're constantly concerned about is yourself. And you're standing before God. Does God love me? Does God like me? Am I saved? And all those sorts of things. God wants us to have confidence. That through faith in Christ, we stand secure. He goes on to say that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see that? We'll come back to this in a minute, but notice that word hope. It's a, it's a big theme of the passage. Hope of the glory of God. He goes on to say, we have character that produces hope. He goes on to say, hope does not put us to shame. Right Over and over again, that word hope, hope, hope. Hope in the New Testament is confident expectation. It's, it's not the wishy-washy hope that we use today. I hope my car cranks. I hope my team wins. I hope I get the job. I hope this happens. I hope this doesn't happen. It's a confident expectation. But we don't treat it that way sometimes. In our culture, we use hope differently. I remember when I was a kid, this one particular Christmas, there was this one, and I might have told this before, but there was this one particular present that I really wanted. It was like 1986, right? And uh, it, was, it was a Bigfoot truck. And for those of you who don't know what Bigfoot is, it was a monster truck, right, back in the, and especially in the 80s. I don't know, maybe he's still around. But it had these big wheels, and, you, you know, it was, wasn't remote control or anything because, well, it was the 80s. And, and you, you turned that thing on, and, man, it would go, and it would just run over stuff and all this kind of stuff. That's, that was the, the gift, right? Every kid always has the gift, the one thing. If you don't get them anything else, just get them that, and they're happy. That was my gift. And we had a little tradition in my family that, that if I bugged my parents enough, um, every year they would honor me with a gift early. Right? So that was a tradition that I created by being a pest um, at that age. And so I would just harass them enough. And finally, about four or five days early, they'd give in and say, okay, you can open one gift and you can just pick one and open it. Well, I had my eye on this one box because I just knew, I knew that was the Bigfoot. Right? And so I had my, man, it was the right shape and it was the right size. And by the way, I'm very good at guessing what's inside of a box. And, and so I had this, I mean, nailed, right? This is it. And I said, that's the one I want to open. And my mom looked at me and said, Are you sure? I don't want you to be disappointed. <laughs> she's, playing, she's playing mom mind tricks on me. I know what she's doing. That's the one I want to open. I, got, I mean, I tore into that thing and ripped open that box, and there was a toboggan and a pair of gloves. And I'm like, it's Alabama, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I'm going to wear these for like, what, a few days out of the year? Like, what, what? It's hot there, too, by the way, right? And I'm like, what in, the, what in the world? And I was so disappointed, right? Got the Bigfoot, but it was like a week later, right? Even all my tears and stuff. I didn't get to open a second present. Listen, some of us, kind of the idea of hope, that's kind of how we look at it. We, we, we think, we think, and we're just hoping the rug's not pulled out in the end. Right? We, we, we're thinking, we're pretty sure. We're almost, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a little doubt there, but we're just hoping when we get to the end, we're not sorely disappointed when we open the box. That's not the biblical idea of hope. It, it's, it's confident expectation. It's unseen certainty. Okay? It's not the kind of hope that I'm like, I hope that there's going to be a heaven when we get to all the end of this. I hope. You know, it's, it's, man, it's, it's, yeah, I haven't seen with my eyes. I haven't maybe uh, tasted with my lips, but spiritually I've experienced in such a way that I know the Holy Spirit has confirmed in my heart these things are true. It, it's, a, it's a supernaturally gifted hope. That's the kind of confidence that we're supposed to, and we, that is ours in Christ as believers. Christian hope is confident expectation, unrealized certainty. I haven't seen it, but I know. I expect fully. I'm fully confident. It's a God-gifted hope. And Christian, the hope Paul speaks of here, we can be confident of 
They are not wishes in a wishing well. It's more certain than the sunset this afternoon. Look at verse 9 and 10 there. He says, Therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved. Since we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He's saying, listen, we can be confident that because we have been justified, he's showing hope here, right? This expectation, this certainty, this confidence that we will be saved from the wrath of God when it comes at the end, right? When we stand before God in judgment, when God judges the world, we're not going to, believers are not going to experience the wrath of God. We have that hope. We have that confident expectation because we have been, past tense, justified by his blood. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Listen, if Christ has been raised, you will be raised is what he's saying. If Christ is alive, you're going to be alive. Listen, if Christ has been raised from the dead, one day you're going to experience a, a resurrection. Your body's not going to stay in the ground. It's going to be transformed. And he gets more into that in Romans 8. Now, living without confidence, without this kind of hope, means living in fear. Now, not fear is in the reverence of God, fear that, but rather fear that he won't be faithful to you. And fear that you can't measure up but you never could measure up anyway. You were never meant to live the Christian life in that kind of fear. We are meant to live in confidence in God's love. And living with confidence means I can face all that comes at me with certainty. And when things are uncertain around me, I know one thing that is certain, and that is where I stand with God. That I'm in. I'm in the family. And that is freeing, Right? That I can just be myself, full of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to try to be somebody else. I, I can just be me. God has accepted me through the blood of Christ. And it frees you to live your life with gratitude. And listen, by the way, with joy. Look at the third thing, the joy of the believer. That's the third thing in this passage that he points out is ours, ours in Christ. The joy of the believer. Joy, we know, is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Fruit of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's activity in your life, his presence in your life, his work in your life, his power in your life produces joy, right? And fruit... God uses that term in the New Testament. He has the writers use that term because fruit, for one thing, fruit has to have a root, right? It doesn't just grow in air, right? You can trace it, right? You go out there and you can look at the apple tree and you see the fruit and you can see down the tree has roots. And so we, if we're rooted in Christ, if we're, if we're rooted in him, then we will bear the fruit of joy, a rock-solid, steadfast joy that can't be taken away. Not, not whimsical happiness, here today, gone tomorrow, Ooh, I bought a new car, I'm happy. Ooh, I wrecked it, I'm sad. Not that, but like, but like steadfast. Something that's there because it's rooted in something below the surface that it's there no matter what happens at surface level. Storm comes, the rain comes. There's still this deep-seated joy that can be ours because it's in something deeper than that. It's like watching a palm tree, right? I'm amazed at these palm trees. You know, storms come through, you look on the coast, and like everything's everywhere, and the palm tree's just like, he you knows doing that, right? Like, what in the world? How do they? How did God make that thing, right? And it's, it, it is, man, it's rooted in the ground, and it's built in such a way to surpass the storm, right? There's something below the surface there, and our joy is rooted in something below the surface, rooted in Christ. Now, He gives us some reasons in this passage for our joy. The first reason He gives is our future glory. In verse two, the second part, He says, "We rejoice in hope of the glory of God." And that word for rejoice. Or is to exult or to boast in, right? This is a serious joy. This is a joy that makes its way from time to time to your face, okay? It makes its way time to time to your voice. It makes, it's not like, you know, um, 
enjoy the Lord. You know, it's not, listen, we're all down sometimes. I'm not talking about like some emotionalism. I'm just saying this isn't, you can't get around it. It means to exalt and to boast in, right? And so it's a serious joy. And that word for rejoice there is a strong word. Now, he says our confidence in our standing before God and our future with him, right? That's what he means by the hope of the glory of God leads to joy. Now, remember back in chapters one and three, chapter one, verse 23 Paul said that we humans have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. In verse 23 of chapter 3, he said, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now we get to Romans 5, and he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, this, you and I were created for glory. We're created to glorify God and to reflect Him, to be like Him in certain ways. We forfeited that through sin. But this is the promise, he's saying, that we will gain that back. That we will ultimately attain to the glory that we were created for and we'll perfectly glorify and image God in the way we were created to in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, Paul says we're rejoicing here in our certain future, is what he's getting to. That confident expectation of one day, man, we're not going to sin. I'm not going to mess up anymore. I'm not going to struggle anymore. I'm not going to get sick anymore. My body's not going to fail me anymore. We rejoice knowing one day we will glorify God in all the ways he intends for us to for all of eternity. That we will be like Jesus Christ in all the ways God intends for us to be like Jesus Christ. So things may be rough now. And at times, things will be rough. But the good news Paul is sharing with us is that our future is secure. And that leads to a reason to rejoice even in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain that our future is victorious, even when we feel like we're losing. <coughs> to the point that he, the second reason he gives us to rejoice is our present suffering. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What kind of crazy person writes that, Paul? Right? You think it when you read it for the first time. It's like, what, what do you mean? Rejoice in our present suffering. Surely in the Greek that means rejoice um, and suffering can be translated like seven other things, and one of those means happy times, right? Or something. I mean, we, we, we look at it, and we kind of go, what do you mean rejoice in our sufferings? That does not make sense. Until you read the rest of the passage, right? And it begins to make sense. Suffering and pain is part of the Christian life. Being right with God doesn't make everything right in your life immediately. And listen, suffering and trials and persecution, they, they are not signs that you're out of favor with God. The same people who stand in his grace, as Paul says, rejoice in our sufferings. Right? Suffering is a part of life, and it's a part of the Christian life. And the reason we can rejoice in our sufferings, the reason we can have joy in the middle of the pain, Paul tells us why. He tells us why we're not crazy. He says it's because we know something. He says knowing that suffering produces, first of all, he says, endurance. See, suffering in this life produces spiritual steadfastness. Remember I said last week, God is not trying to break you. He's trying to what? Build you, right? He, he's, he's, he's preparing you for eternity. It's like a person training for a marathon. I doubt that's fun. If I, if I began to train for a marathon right now, I would have a lot of pain ahead of me, okay? A lot of suffering. It would not be good. It would not be pretty. I would have to change my diet. I'd have to change my habits, and I would have to just run a whole lot. As you already heard, I don't like even walking in sand, so I'm not going to be a great runner. And... But you have to put your body through some stuff to prepare your body to be able to finish the race, right? And in the same way, because it, what? it produces endurance. You run a mile, and then 
A week later, you're running two miles. Then sometime later, you're running three miles. And you're, and you're building endurance so that you can go further. And Paul says, and endurance, verse 4, produces character. Character produces hope. Now, why does endurance produce character? The word there for character means it's the idea of proof. Proven character. Proof of character. In other words, when you, we all have character, right? It just might not be good character. Or it could be bad character, right? But we've all got some form of character. Here he's saying, when you endure the trials and remain faithful to Christ, your character is proven. The character of your faith is proven. It's, it's, made, it's made known. You're being tested. Why do, we, why do we take tests? When you were in school, why did you take tests? Figure out how you're doing, right? <laughs> it, it shows us, okay, you say you know this. Well, here's the test. Oh, you didn't know what you think you know. Or what? Well, God proves the validity of our faith in the trials. In the trials. That's why you'll hear people say, man, I've been going through some stuff, but I've never, you'll hear sometimes a strong believer say, but I've never felt closer to God. Because God's working in the midst of that stuff. He's not abandoning you. Sometimes in our culture, we want to think that, man, the idea that something bad is happening to someone, man, that they must have done something, right? No, no, no. It could be that God is doing something in the midst of that because he is thinking on a bigger scale and he's working towards eternity. And he's, he's revealing their character. And that person that you see, they go, man, they're suffering. They're going through this. They're going through that. But they stay so faithful. They're so godly. And I'm like, yeah. And see, God, that, their faith is being put on display to strengthen your faith, strengthen their faith, strengthen the faith of the people around them because God's at work in their life, even in the trial. And he says, and that character, that proven character produces hope. We just made a circle. We're back at hope, right? It produces hope. Seeing God work in your life in the midst of your suffering strengthens your hope in the future. When you experience God in suffering and in pain and in difficulty now, it builds your hope in what is God is going to do in the future, future of this life and ultimately the future to come. And when you meet a when you meet that suffering saint and you think, wow, what faith, we need to always realize that God did that in them and that suffering over the course of their life is a part of the recipe that God used to actually heal them. And whatever suffering you've encountered in your life, God is using that to strengthen yours. And he says, verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. We aren't humiliated by our hope. We are not going to have the rug pulled out from under us. We're not going to be disappointed. We are not going to be made fools of. Listen, our joy is rooted in certainty. So how do you know that? You can't see the future. I've had these conversations this week as well. This, this, I, how, can, how, how do you really know? He says, well, we're tracing the roots here. How can, how can our hope, how, how can our hope not, how can we know our hope does not put us to shame? Well, the fruit we said was joy, right? We've been tracing this line from suffering to endurance to character. We're back at hope, which is a deep reason for our joy, he's explained. And now we find out why we have such confidence in this hope, why we have such joy in this hope. He says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God's love. Specifically, God's love shown, he goes on to say, and experienced in Jesus. Love like that secures our hope. Love like that spurs great joy. Love like that changes our perspective. That, I, that phrase there, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, what is he speaking of there? He's talking about it experientially. Okay? I know, we're bad. We don't like to talk about experiences. 
weirds people out. We start talking about, you know, other than like, other than like getting saved, we're like, what do you mean experience, Pastor? You know, we get all weird about it. What, what's he talking about here? Here's what, here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you have experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He pours the love of God into your heart. What, what do you mean by that? You know that God loves you because the Holy Spirit makes sure you know. So what happens when I don't feel that way? That ain't on God. Man, you might have believed the lie, right? We, we, sometimes we wander from God, and we can, the Bible says, quench the Holy Spirit. But one of the reasons the Holy Spirit is in your life, the Word of God tells you, He pours the love of God into your heart. And Paul is very clearly talking here about an experiential of knowing that I'm loved by God. God does not want His children wandering around wondering, am I loved by God? Is God really for me or is he against me? How does God feel about me today? The Holy Spirit is in your life. One of those reasons is he confirms to you, man, he is crying out like, Abba, Father, right? That, that, that you are in good relationship, good standing with your heaven, that, he lo that you love him, that he loves you. Man, that, that, all that work is being done by the Spirit in your life. And if you, if you want to kill joy in your life, simply doubt God's love for you. Anything or anyone that tries to convince you God doesn't radically love you in Christ Jesus is a thief and a liar. They're not doing God's work. Anytime you doubt God's love for you, anytime you feel like you, God maybe doesn't love you, that's not of God. For any believer in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit will convict you, right, when you sin. I heard a pastor talk about this a while back. Made a great point. The Holy Spirit will convict you Satan will condemn you. <laughs> There's no condemnation. We'll get to that in Romans 8 for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit, though, will show you in the Word of God something's wrong and lead you to repent of it. Right? And you'll feel sorrow for your sin and want to turn from it, but, it, but it's Satan. Satan will condemn you. He wants you to know that it was wrong, and then he also wants you to think that that's all you are. Right? Holy Spirit, man, you read the Word, and you go, man, I, that was deceptive. I might not have told an outright lie, but I was deceiving them. That was wrong. The Holy Spirit is showing me in the Bible, leading me to repent, fess that, forsake that, live in truth. Satan does that's not the way, that's not what he wants. With Satan, it's more like, and you're a liar. That's all you are is a liar. Right? In fact, you you stink at this Christian life stuff, right? I mean, he wants to condemn you, right? But that's not the Holy Spirit wants to convict you because one of the things he does is not. Crush your spirit. He fills you with understanding that God loves you. That God loves you. God loves me. He wants you to know that. He is always assuring us that we are loved and that God is for us. And, he, and true obedience, true Christian flourishing, truly walking with God from the right motive flows from a heart that knows God loves me. I'm not working to get his love. I'm working because he loves me and I love him. Trials come, pain comes, weeping comes, mourning comes, suffering comes, but joy remains deep in our soul because it's rooted in the love of God, he says, that is expressed in Jesus. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. While we were still weak, he begins to explain, why, why can we have such confidence? How can the Holy Spirit so assure us that we are loved in this way? Because while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Because Jesus didn't die for you on your best day. So you can know he loves you on your worst day. He died for you when you were at your worst. The most sinful version of yourself. The ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but we're not good, right? He says in verse 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, rebels, Christ died for us. God has put his love on display. We can experience God's love given by the Spirit only once we have looked in faith at it displayed in Christ Jesus on the cross. See, God shows his love for us and for you, for me, in that when we were at our worst. He said about when we were weak. He talks about when we were ungodly. In other words, when we had nothing to offer, right? When there was no reason for God to say, I love you. When there was no reason for God to say, man, you're, there, was no re- there was nothing in us to earn that whatsoever. It was in that moment. That's what I think he's talking about when he says, when he talks about at the right time, right? It's as if when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, Paul wants us to see that God's love for us surpasses all human love. That's why he does the illustration. Scarcely will one die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person. He's trying to show like in human terms, we struggle to even think about laying down our life for a really good person. And he's saying, well, God sent Jesus to die for you. And Jesus willingly laid down his life for you when you were a sinner. You're, you are loved, he's telling us, the most by the one who knows you the best. Your parents, your kids, your spouse, they don't know you the best. God knows stuff they don't know about your past, about your present, about your future. He sees inside your head. And he knows stuff that they forgot. And you have done more to offend God than you ever have anybody else on this planet. Yet he loves you most. And that is the root system from which true joy can really come from. We can rejoice in our sufferings if we follow this line because we have hope. And that hope is secured by the love of God that has been displayed on the cross. And it's looking at all this, it's no wonder that Paul ends the whole passage with this. He says what in verse 11? More than all that, we rejoice in. Yes, yes, our future glory, yes, our present sufferings, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, it's just God the reconciler brings us great joy. Believers rejoice in God. God's the prize, the great prize of justification, of salvation in Jesus, is that you get God, the God who loves you at your worst, but too much to leave you that way. You rejoice in him through Jesus because that's what our joy is ultimately in. And so we can rejoice in him before we can care anything about him, Right? But now, transformed by the power of the gospel, we rejoice in God. Let me ask you, what's your joy rooted in today? What would your kids say your joy is rooted in today? Your spouse say? Your family say? Those that know you the best, what would they say your joy is rooted in? Most of us struggle. We struggle from time to time misplacing our joy. We've got problem areas, right? If you want to know what your, your problem area is, ask yourself, what do you get angry about? What are you quickest to get angry about? What are you quickest to get unjoyful about? Right? When work disappoints you, when your kids mess up, when your spouse doesn't come through, when the bank account's too low, right? That's what will tend to compete for your main source of joy in life. You see, the mark, the mark of a believer is this rejoicing in God. Yeah, we, we love God. 
We, we want to worship God. We want to celebrate God. We want to obey God. We want to, to know God. We, we rejoice in God. Everyone rejoices. Before Christ, I re we went rejoice in achievements, relationships, pleasures, ourselves, but we don't rejoice in God, not truly. And the believer, though, rejoices in God, for God is our greatest treasure. Now, here's the thing. If you're a believer in Christ, all this is yours. Peace with God. Confidence before Him. Joy. Yes, in your future, but also in your present in the midst of suffering. All that is yours if you've been made righteous, declared righteous by God in Christ. All rooted in God through Christ who has loved you with an incredible love that you can be assured of. It's rock solid, written in the book. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves when we read a passage like this, and we have to filter our life through, am I living like I have peace with God? Well, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, if I'm living in re rebellion to God's revealed will for my life in his word, then I'm kind of living like I'm at war with God in this passage. I'm taking lightly the peace that is mine that has been made by God. Am I living with confident hope? What's robbing my assurance today? What lie have I believed? Have I been sidelined from serving God by lost confidence in my standing with God? Hard questions that we need to ask. Am I living with joy, joy rooted in God's love for me, joy that looks to the future I have with him, joy even in present suffering, or have I traded my joy in God for temporary happiness rooted in things that won't last? Every believer, we have to be asking ourselves those questions because we can have something. It can be ours in Christ, and we can live like it's not true and function like it's not true. And finally, if you do know Christ today, if you do not know Christ today, the big thing is this. All this can be yours. All this peace with God, confidence before him, joy, unspeakable joy, even in the midst of suffering, all that can be yours through faith in Christ Jesus. If you're, when you're justified by faith in Christ Jesus. God sent Jesus to die for sinners, to die in our place on the cross and be risen from the dead so that when we turn from our sin and place our faith in him, he declares us righteous like Jesus is righteous. He looks at us like we're sinless because Jesus is sinless. Because we get Jesus' righteousness because Jesus took our sin and the judgment we deserve. And when we place our faith and trust in him, all that we talked about this morning is ours. Peace with God, certainty before him, and joy even in the midst of suffering can be ours through faith in him.